the assistant pastor here at, at uh, VEV. Um, it's never ever clear where that assistant goes, either if it's pastoral assistant or assistant pastor, but you're both, I'd say. So um, why don't we pray for Joanna, and then she's going to uh, continue our series from the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, thank you so much for your servant here. We just ask that by your spirit, you would continue um, using her here in this service now um, just to bless us with your word. We know that she's prepared um, this week, and we just ask that that the, the fruit of that preparation would land like seed in our hearts, and we would really grab it. That we wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be hesitant or bashful about really seizing the word that you've brought through her. So prepare our hearts right now and prepare her heart. Bless her. Fill her up. Give back to her spiritually or materially, however you can, the, the time that she's put in to, to bringing us this, this sermon today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Alex. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Uh, so our church is going through, as Alec already mentioned, a series of, on the Sermon of the Mount. And um, the Sermon on the Mount, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is a condensed summary of all of Jesus' teaching that can essentially be expanded to include pretty much most things he touches on in the Gospels. One way that our lead pastor, Gordy, has explained it is that when you take a class in university, they give you a course syllabus. And it's like the Sermon on the Mount is almost like Jesus' course syllabus to say, Here's all the different things. And so as a church, we've been working through it the past few months, and we've been touching on different issues like righteousness, conflict, community, retaliation, marriage, divorce. And there's been some pretty great fruit that we've seen already in the church just from what God's been doing as we've been working through. Um, some, some pretty amazing things happened over Christmas, some pretty, uh, pretty neat connections with uh, relationships being rebuilt in the neighborhood, just even seeing relationships worked out, people being committed to reconciliation here in the church, and just the faithfulness, too, of the married couples that are here in the church, just being committed to their marriages and continuing to work and continuing to be faithful. And so we're seeing fruit in that, and we're continuing on, and today we're talking about prayer. So let's start by reading the verses for this week. Oh, I clicked too far. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's read this all together. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So last week, Gordy talked about the verses that precede these in the Sermon on the Mount, um, that they're there in Matthew 6.1. And it's essentially where Jesus says that we need to make sure that we're not doing acts of righteousness in front of others just so that we can be seen and be noticed. And he warned against hypocrisy, basically, this living your life in a different way on the outside than you are in private, this outward show in religious duties. 
And so our passage this week on prayer continues on that same theme. It just so happens that one of the ways that the hypocrites in Jesus' time demonstrated their hypocrisy was to pray loudly and visibly in public. And so Jesus is countering their example in this passage by using a very emphatic counter-approach. In fact, the word hypocrite in that culture didn't just mean someone whose actions don't match up their private life or their outward life, but the word hypocrite actually meant actor, like a stage actor. So when he's saying, don't be like the hypocrites, he's actually saying, don't be like those fake people who are just pretending. It's a really blatant word. Uh, The commentator, Matthew Henry, said on on his commentary of these passages that Gordy did last week, what we must do, what we, sorry, what we do must be done from an inward principle, that we are approved of God and not that we're looking to be praised by others. So in the text in this week, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So to begin with, we know that Jesus is talking about a principle. He's talking about a guide for our hearts and not a hard and fast rule for every time that we pray. Because if he's not, if, he's not, if it's not a, a principle, then when Alec just prayed for me before I spoke, or any time we pray in public, we would be sinning, which can't be the case, because that would render Jesus himself a hypocrite. Because there's examples of him praying in public. In fact, there's in the Gospel of John, there's a very public prayer that the whole thing's written down, that he prayed out loud. Um, in Acts chapter 1, there's a, after Jesus has died, there's a time where the apostles publicly pray for guidance to figure out who's going to be the next disciple. And a fantastic example is in the Gospel of John chapter 11, when Jesus goes to his friend Lazarus, who's died, and he's praying for Lazarus to be raised from the dead, he actually says, well, the, the verse says, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people that are standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So we know this can't be a principle to not stand and pray publicly because Jesus does it, and not only does he do it, but he actually specifically says, I'm now praying out loud so that all these people here can hear me. And the issue is, of course, your intention and your motivation, right? And he clearly states both. He clearly states, hi, Father, thank you that you hear me. Here's my clear motivation. And what we were talking about just a minute ago and what Gordy talked about last week, where are you getting your approval or your sense of worth or value from? Is it that you need to stand up and, you know, make a big prayer? Or is it that Jesus is saying, I know, I know you heard me. So his uh, identity is clear and his motivation is clear. So we, we know we're talking about, about a principle. The big eye-opener for me this week, just one second, when I was studying this passage was learning that uh, Jesus' example on prayer in this situation, the word you, when you go into your room and you pray, in the original Greek it's singular. So he's talking about you alone. When you are all by yourself, what do you do by yourself? And in our human relationships, we have a very different way of talking to each other in different circumstances. And I'm not talking about hypocrisy. I'm talking about 
just appropriateness and context. My husband and I, we've been married for 16 years. There's times where we will teach together publicly. How we talk when we interact when we're teaching publicly and how we talk when we're in front of our three children who are eight, five and three quarters and three and how we talk when we're all by ourselves alone in our room are three very different things and appropriately so. And so what we need to know about this passage is what Jesus is saying is when you are all by yourself and you want to talk to God, you and God alone, you go by yourself into your room and you close the door and get by yourself and you and God alone together. It's talking about intimacy. I don't know about you, but in this season of my life, I am hardly ever alone. Even during the service, I had a small person who said, you're going to the bathroom? I'll come to the bathroom with you. I mean, I thought I could read the paper the other day in there. There's a gap underneath our bathroom door. The children literally stole the newspaper out of the bed. Like, it's just, I'm never alone. So for me, I had a revelation in this as I was preparing this going, oh, Jesus is saying to me, go by yourself. (laughs) Get alone. And I think, that's awesome. Um, And if we think that instead of Jesus is offering this harsh correction, like you are not having enough quiet times, or there's no discipline, or da-da-da-da-da-da, but if we hear it again in this thought of encouraging intimacy, to me it sounds very precious. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And Gordy talked last week about how the reward for a heart that's motivated only by pleasing God, the reward is actually inherent in the doing. We get reward just from that time alone, just from that that presence. And there is a reward that comes from intimacy with God. When you share something with God that nobody else does, that is actually in my life, it's not like any other experience that I've had. And and I'm hesitant to talk about it (laughs) because it was so intimate and quiet and all by myself and something that nobody but me and God knew about. And it's, and that is reward in and of itself, that preciousness, that thing that, that we shared. Uh, the book that's currently changing my life right now is by a Canadian homeschooling mother of six, the wife of a pig farmer from Ontario whose name is Anne Voskamp, and she wrote a book called 1,000 Gifts, Dare to Live Fully Right Where You Are, and I am just, it is meat. I'm just chewing my way through it. And she has a beautiful blog called A Holy Experience, and on this blog, she writes about one of her daughters going out on her swing to pray. This is what she says. Only all those, all these quiet prayers with the sun on the nape, and the prayers they are doing something, and it can be felt in the bones. Prayer isn't merely talking to God. It is being transformed by God. Prayer is this moving towards God, the heat of a holy fire, and feeling all the dross burn away. Burning away that word that comes too quickly, I. Because I, it isn't my name, it's his. He alone is the great I am. 
life, it's not about me. It's not about what I want. It is about being holy, I ams. And in the praying, it becomes not about what I want, but about what he wills. The nearer that you draw to a holy, loving God, all the eyes, they burn away into this willing yes. Yes. There is light in the trees. There is light in the leaves and in her hair falling. And I watch how she throws her head back and she laughs. The release of letting go right into light. Right? It's drawing near to God. This drawing near to God, oh wait, before I go on to here, this drawing near to God, it does involve us being willing to develop a a practice of making time alone to be with God. And I uh, confess right now in my life, this is not a consistent discipline for me. I find this um, a challenge with my life the way it is right now, but it's always discipline, any consistent discipline has always been a challenge for me. It is a weakness. But I know now through this sermon that this is God's call to me to come closer and come, um, as Aslan says in Narnia, come further up and further in. The Bible teacher John Piper says when teaching on these verses, this simple command stands for a hundred ways that you may plan or pray to be disciplined. And this is just one. Make sure that part of your praying is the private prayer where it's just you and God. And take whatever steps are necessary to secure this kind of praying in your life. So what's necessary for you? What's necessary for me? What's necessary for you to make sure that part of your prayer life is time where it's just you and God together? One could consider this a bit of a dance with legalism when you start to talk about it in the thought of disciplines, but Piper goes on to say, if you were starving, I don't know if I'm supposed to read this whole example. He gives a good example, and if you really want to know, you can ask me later, but I'm just having a hesitancy about going into the explanation of the whole thing. I think suffice it to say, and I really want to be obedient to God today because I really feel like I, that it's a precious thing, so I have to... I'm a verbal processor. Sometimes I have to edit out loud. I'm just going to stop there. Let's just say we need to make a practice, right? Something that we are, are deliberate about spending time alone with God. Let's keep going. And when you pray, do not keep babbling on like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Um... I want to reference my friend Jamie's book, and he really is my friend, which is why I I talked about him last time I spoke about the Sermon on the Mount. I have a friend, his name is J.B. Armand Reese, and he's written a book about the Sermon on the Mount called The Cost of Community. And he really is a good friend, which is why I'm so stoked that he actually wrote a book and it got published, and it's so good. And he talks about this passage, and he writes that in Jesus' culture at this time, when he's speaking, there were specific times of prayer for the Jewish people. So the fact that Jesus is talking about prayer, and he doesn't reference them either to condemn set times of prayer or to affirm them, is actually significant. Because it's clear he wasn't against public praying, because praying together as a community of faith is affirmed elsewhere. And while Jesus is rejecting going on and on and on and on and on as you're praying, he's clearly, he's not against long times of prayer, because in his life... We know that Jesus went away to be alone and spent long times in prayer. So it's, it's not about that. 
He's calling us again to examine our intentions in prayer. Where is our heart? There is a great quote from the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon that I found that I liked very much. He said, true prayer is measured by weight and not by length. A single groan before God may have more fullness of prayer in it than a fine oration of great length. Isn't it so true that some of us have just come before the Lord sometimes and you don't even have any words? You just, uh. Are we talking, 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 talking on and on? Are we trying to find some sort of secret formula? Are there words we want something so badly? If we just say the right words, we'll just get it. Um, the message has a very interesting way. Uh, Eugene Peterson writes this verse this way. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for what, getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. We're not trying to find the right combination of words. And this, um, you know, again, the first verse is that God wants us to have this precious, connected father and child, mother and child relationship, this relationship of intimacy and not looking for the right formula. And this came home to me in a a personal way this week. Um, Many of you know that my husband's, uh, he calls him his spiritual dad, his mentor, his name is Don Newfeld. He's one of our leaders in Youth of the Mission. This is him and his wife, Gwen. And Don has an inoperable brain tumor. And without a miracle, he is is going to die. we're not sure when. We thought at the end of November that he had a few days to live. He's still here. Uh, he can't read. He can't really talk very well anymore. He can't move. Um, and he is in hospice. And we have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for healing. And they have been to churches to what's the church in California with the cancer-free zone? Is it Bethel? Anyway, they have prayed and prayed and prayed. And Gwen has been writing an online journal of their journey. And she wrote this this week. By his stripes, we are healed. That's a verse from Isaiah 53. And she says, I've been contemplating the title scripture in Isaiah 53 this morning. And I think of how often I've used that phrase out of context, almost as a mantra when I've been praying for physical healing. Today I'm applying it in our situation where the tumor in Don's head has not disappeared when many have asked it to, nor when I've spoken these magic words. So today I've concluded that undoubtedly the healing by his stripes refers to just more than getting rid of uncomfortable things that are going on in our bodies. I know, duh, but please bear with me. My question then, what are we being healed of in this situation? What might have you been praying for us? The following is an incomplete list of suggestions. This is her still writing. What Dawn is being healed of? A desire for the things of this world. A need to compete, especially in athletics. He could whoop anybody in squash. A need to be independent, to provide, to support. A need to speak, to sing, to lead, to do. What Gwen is being healed of? She's writing about herself. A stridency about widowhood. I would often say when handing Don his supplements, take these, I don't want to be a widow. A need to be with someone. My worship of the companionship of marriage is the only way of life for me. My need to be right. The idea that being a Christ follower solves all my problems. 
my view of prayer as explaining to God what I want, a penchant to worry about the past or the future instead of being aware in this moment, my judgments, my second-guessing myself, expectations that lead to disappointment, picking up responsibilities in my family that no longer belong to me. That's a pretty incredible list of things that they're being healed of. You know, we just want the tumor to go away, but I am so in awe of her that this is how she's chosen to focus right now, is to ask God, if you say, if I believe in faith that you're healing us, what are you healing us of? And that she's been able to compile this list. She goes on to finish by saying this, I want to live Romans 8, 5 to 17 for the rest of my life. This is how the message phrases it. The resurrection life that you received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It is an adventurously expectant greeting with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know what he is, and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we're going to get exactly what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. And you think that even after sharing from Don and Gwen, I'm only talking about sweetness and light when I'm talking about intimacy, true intimacy with God in our lives of prayer. Anne Voskamp says in another brilliant turn of phrase, lament is the cry of belief in a good God who has his ear to our hearts, a God that transfigures ugly into beauty. Complaint. Complaint is the bitter howl of unbelief in any benevolent God in this moment, a distrust in the love beat of the Father's heart. And when it comes down to this, if we want to have a life of prayer where we live in what Spurgeon called a loving, living, lasting, conscious, practical, abiding union with God, we have to want one. That's it. We have to want it. We have to want to have an intimate relationship with God. We have to want to have him be our father and mother and lover and brother and sister. We have to want it. And if we do not believe in a benevolent God, if we do not believe in a God that transfigures ugly into beauty, water into wine, you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of dust. I love that song. You make beautiful things. Come on, don't leave me all alone. You make beautiful things out of us. Do we believe, do we really believe that what we sang today? That we have a God who transfigures ugly into beauty. That's what we said. That's what we sang today. That's what we said. So we have to want that. And we can't hope to attain intimacy with somebody if we don't believe that they're good through a practice that we're not sure works anyhow. Because prayer works, it exists for us to grow closer to God, for us to become more like God, for us to see with God's eyes, with God's heart, for us to become like him. And when we see only through our own clouded eyes, through our own shadowed eyes, we see through a glass darkly. We need God to say, 
through prayer. It, prayer is that time where God comes and he wipes our eyes and he says, see, come look. Come see through my lenses. Come, come see. Let me help you see. This last verse says, do not be like them, the pagans that go on and on and on and on, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Can I trouble you for the Kleenex, Anna? I should just bring Kleenex every time. <laughs> Thank you. When Lydia and Burden first met, and Lydia was like, oh, my friend Joanna, and Burden was like, oh, the lady who cries. Yeah, the lady who cries, that's her. <laughs> So, this last question here, if God is loving and benevolent and an intimate father who knows what we need, why do we have to ask him? Why? Why, if he knows exactly what we need, why do we need to do that? Well, I believe the answer goes right back to creation. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave dominion over the whole earth to them. And they were God's managers, they were God's mediators on the earth. Psalm 115 uses the phrase that says, God assigned the earth to mankind. God didn't give it away ownership of the earth, but he assigned the task of managing the earth responsibly to Adam and Eve. That was their job. You may be asking yourself, why would he take such a risk? (laughs) And there's an excellent book on prayer called Intercessory Prayer by an American pastor named Dutch Sheets. And it's, to me, it's the best, I've never found anywhere, well, not like I read tons of theological books all the time, but I really like his explanation. And what I'm about to say comes from this great book. And he asks the question, he says, why? Why would God do it this way? And for what I know about God and the scriptures and my personal walk with him, I can find only one conclusion. God wanted a family, sons and daughters, who he could personally relate to and vice versa. And so he made our original parents, he's referring to Adam and Eve, similar to himself. He put his very life and his spirit into them and he gave them a beautiful home with lots of pets and they settled down and he said, this is good. And so complete and final was Adam's authority over the earth that he, not just God, had the ability to give it away to somebody else. And that's what happened in the fall when Satan tempted Adam and Eve. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a story about Satan coming to tempt Jesus. And Satan says to Jesus, I'll give you all this domain and its glory because it's been handed over to me and I'll give it to whomever I wish. Jesus does not contradict Satan. Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world three times in the gospel. So complete and final was God's decision on earth to do things through humans that it cost him the incarnation to gain back what Adam gave away. Alex spoke so beautifully about this at Christmas time. If you did not hear that sermon, please go online and look for the December 23rd uh, sermon about the incarnation. I am not exaggerating when I say I actually just stood around crying afterwards, (laughs) like just bowled over. It made everything. I went to mass with my parents on Christmas Day, and it just made every reference to the incarnation more and more and more epic. God had to become part of the human race, and this certainly seems to give proof to the fact that humans were forever to be God's link to authority on the earth. And so, this to me seems to be 
a reason for the necessity of prayer. And it's... God chose from the time of creation to work on the earth through humans, not independently of them. He always has and always will, even at the cost of becoming one. God's still sovereign. He's still all-powerful. But he's chosen to limit himself concerning the affairs of the earth and to working through us. Next week, we're going to study the Lord's Prayer in detail, and in it, we're going to see that Jesus himself said to us, he told us to ask for his kingdom to come. He told us to ask for his will to be done. He told us to ask for our daily bread. But this verse here says that he knows our needs before we ask them. So why are we supposed to ask God for something that he already wants to do if it is not that our asking somehow releases him to do it? Our asking somehow releases that authority And this is sobering, if you think about it. Because this means that if things really do change when we pray, it means they don't change when we don't pray. And it makes the responsibility and the weight of prayer greater, which is where we need to come back to the first thing we talked about today, in that all prayer, especially the kind alone, is from this intimacy, this relationship of intimacy, love, Not God saying, here's a list of things to do, but, oh, my son, my daughter, come on in. Let me tell you what's on my heart today. I've had times of intercession where we have prayed for a topic, a country, a city, people that I could not have cared less about at the beginning of the time of intercession. Are you smiling? I hope somebody else has had this too. And then I start to pray, and something happens that is nuts. I can feel my heart, like, squeezing right now. I just, where I'll be weeping over things, where God will give me his heart. And I will feel differently at the end of that time of prayer because I've prayed. I think there is also something very profound in us needing to identify our own need. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus comes to a blind man and he says to him, what do you want me to do for you? might have seemed pretty obvious. Perhaps Jesus asked just to cause this man to state the absurdity of his own request so that when it was granted, he would be aware what a huge miracle it was. But I think there's something valuable in us just needing to name our own needs sometimes, in knowing what we need. And here is, to me, the final question when we talk about prayer. Why would God tell us to pray for others if the free will that's given to us as human beings make our prayers pointless? If people are going to do what they want to do anyway, regardless of what we pray? There are both scriptures and life experiences that have convinced me that God does and will intervene. And he will even impinge on our free will and the free will of others in answer to believing prayer. I, I believe that. And I know that this might open a theological can of worms that I can't untangle today in the time that we have. But to give one example of many in the Bible, if Saul was just continuing with his own free will, Saul who became Paul, his free will was clear. He wanted to kill Christians. That's what his his will was. And there was a lot of Christians who were praying about him, about that. 
And Jesus clearly impinged on his free will on the road to Damascus. And I use the word impinge, and this is where the nerdiness in me came out this particular sermon, because I discovered that the definition of the word impinge means to come into contact with, encroach, or have an impact on. And it's more accurate than the word infringe, which indicates that you're violating somebody's rights or privileges. I have a couple other examples. I have friends who were jailed for preaching the gospel in a closed Muslim nation. They were not supposed to be there. They were caught. And there were people literally around the world praying for them for their release. And they had a judge who just changed his mind in the middle of the trial. Inexplicably, totally, completely changed his mind. Get out of here. Go. Just leave. Leave the country. Their passports were never marked. They had guards who carried their luggage out. One of them carried out a a guitar case full of Bibles. The guard just carried it out of the nation, just moved them out of the nation. It just was in no way in line with what the laws of the nation or what we would what I could possibly imagine the free will of that judge would have been. I read an article in the newspaper recently about the ferry crash that happened a few years back. I think it was up by the Queen Charlottes. And there was a man who was inexplicably woken up in the middle of the night, felt like he was randomly supposed to turn on his radio, and he heard a distress call, and he went out in his fishing boat, and he saved all but two of the passengers. And he said... I'm still marveling at the instinct that caused me to wake up and turn on my radio. And I'm reading Globe and Mail going, you're marveling at the instinct? Like, if this is not, your free will was cleared to sleep. You went to bed, you're planning to sleep all night. Like, I know that this is a biggie. I know it's a biggie. And I know we could go way out here with it. But what I want to come back to is prayer does change things. Prayer does change people. It does. The bottom line here is that the idea of God moving in our lives is only a frightening thing if we don't believe that God is entirely good. If we don't believe that God is entirely good and entirely for us, and that even in the most difficult circumstances in our lives, his will is for our best. The whole point of today's passage is the importance of time alone with God to develop intimacy with a loving Heavenly Father who wants us to know him the way that he knows us. To quote the passage again with the picture of the girl on the swing, she says, the nearer you draw to a holy, loving God, all of the eyes... They burn away to this willing yes. You know, Rose's example today was about how God's calling us to generosity and obedience in these these beautiful things. When we spend this time with God, we come to a place where we can trust that If he tells us that something's good for us, we can believe him and do it. So if he says, go to your room and shut the door and pray to the Father, we can trust him, not to make him be on our side, but because he's already on our side. And we can come to the place where we can see that God is good. 
and we want to receive as much of Christ as we can. So when God bids us to go somewhere alone to be rewarded by the Father, we go with great expectation that he has a gift for us, and that gift is more of himself. In other words, every answer to prayer that would be good for us, Christ has already purchased it for us by his blood. So we cannot, we cannot purchase, we did not purchase anything, any good thing that's going to come to us. So when we go to be alone with God, we're not going there to make some kind of purchase, or we're not going to negotiate. We receive by asking. I'm challenged in giving this message to be more intentional about time alone with my Heavenly Father. Because Christ died for us, and through prayer, God will give us what we need, mainly more of himself. We have a few more minutes, and my sense right now is that there are questions here amongst us, amongst you guys, about this that come up that aren't questions like, well, that's really interesting, I'm glad that you brought that up, but questions like, why? Why then? Is this the way that things are in my life, or does my heart feel this way? And so I just want to give time for um, quiet, uh, for you to just ask if there's anything that's keeping you from this place of being able to go alone and be alone with God and say, I believe. This verse that my friend Gwen quoted later from the message, right? Where it says, we know what he is and we know who we are, father and children. And this resurrection life that's described. An adventurously expected greeting God with child like, what's next, Papa? I actually do an exercise with my kids called, what next? What's next, Mom? When I want them to help me clean the house where I will actually go to a place and we'll need to clean stuff up and I, ha- and I give them a thing and then they have to come back, they go and run and put it away and then they have to come back and say, what's next, mom? And I say, here's the thing. And I never thought about this being any way uh, spiritual. <laughs> it was purely a way for me to make sure they didn't go away to another part of the house and get distracted. And I can yell at them and say, what's next? And they go, oh, oh, not okay. And then they come back and say, what's next, mom? But today when I was reading this, I thought about uh, my three-year-old who's starting to get in on it. And he'll sometimes get distracted and go away and, you know, and then he comes back and he has got this face. And it is this, this adventurous, expectant, what's next, mom? Like, this is the coolest thing ever. Give me a shoe to put on the shoe rack or whatever the thing is. But this heart of, yeah, I know that what you're going to ask me to do is going to be awesome, like, great. You know, that intentionality. I was sharing with Rose this morning that my daughter Eleanor, who is the, the flag dancer here at the front, we're getting ready and we're talking about how we're going to do her hair. 
And I said, what about cute ponytails? I love your hair and ponytails. I haven't done that for a while. She said, Mom, I am going to church to bless God. I need to be beautiful. I was like, you certainly do, right? She was like, it, my hair has to be like a princess with the braids in the back. Okay. But then I was, I was struck by that afterwards. And, you know, and Rose said to me, too, how many of us come to church like, oh, let's come to church? Instead of saying, how can I be ready? I'm going to, Mom, I'm going to church today to bless God. And it wasn't even, I'm going to church to see what I can get. Right? I'm going to church because I'm so empty, I need to be filled up. I'm going to church because I need so much. It was, I'm going, Mom, Mom, ponytails are clearly not appropriate for this situation. I'm going to church to bless God. So let's just take a minute. Would you be so bold? I know this is scary, it can be scary. But I just believe that God wants so much for us today. Just so much. Whether it's that you've got stuff that you want burned away by that holy God, that is that, as Aaron Boskamp talked about, all that stuff, that dross that gets burned away, or whether you are sitting there with a pile of kindling, and you are just ready to go, and it just needs to be ignited. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are already here. Would you give my friends the courage to just ask, what's next, Papa? What's next, Mama? What's next? spoke to me earlier as John was preaching. Uh, it's the, the last chapter of Isaiah, uh, verse 12 and 13, but specifically 13, I'll read the two. It says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall be nursed, you shall be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Thank you, Evan. Yeah, so maybe that's you today. Maybe you need comfort. Maybe the place of you being alone with God is simply getting a really, really big hug.
Yesterday I was speaking with Art and Dixie, and in parting, they said, please say hello to everyone at Eastside Vineyard for us tomorrow. Give us, give them our love. Let them know that we're always thinking about them. And also ask them to continue to pray for us and our blue denim venture that God continues to open the path and show us the way. So greetings from Art and Dixie. Did you want to share something? Thanks, Aldona. It really spoke to me when Joanna was going on about the lady that was praying for the healing of her um, husband's tumor. And then she uh, came to a place where she was starting to recognize what she herself needed healing from. And um, it's just in line with a, a very brief testimony I want to share because there was a time when um, <clears throat> you know, even living as a single parent, I'd pray for Lord, I need more sleep, or Lord, I need to make a little bit more money, or, you know, Lord, I need to, you know, get a better car and all these things. But um, what happened was is that um, through going through that kind of fire, I'm really grateful because he had brought me to a place where I started to pray, Lord, can you help me trust you a little bit? Lord, you know, forgive me for my unbelief. I had to repent of unbelief. I had to, I had to ask for forgiveness for a lack of trust because I used to carry around this worry and, and, and this control thing. It's not going to happen unless I make it happen. If I don't make it happen, it's not happening. And I had to repent from that, still be responsible and accountable for the things that I do, but not to carry this burden of worry, worry and, and start really praying for um, um, me to be able to trust the Lord. I'm getting better in that area. I still have ways to go. I do trust the Lord, but I'd like to trust him even a whole lot more than I do now because I would like to be able to actually stand in the place that if this whole building just blew up, I'd still be all right. I'd still feel peace. Amen? Mm-hmm. Amen. Thanks, Aldona. I appreciate that. I'm working on that, too. So it's, um, it's time for uh, those of us who have little kids downstairs to go and sign them out and release the teachers. Um, I... Uh, yeah, if there's if God's doing work in you, I, I encourage you to, to stay in this moment. Um, if you would like prayer, and there isn't, first of all, if there's someone near you that you trust that you can ask for prayer, please do that first. That's, again, always out of relationship. But if you're here and you don't feel like there's somebody that you can ask for prayer, please come up and just have a seat in the front row and we'll get somebody to, to pray with you. And um, I just really want to thank you for, uh, for listening today so attentively and just really being present and, and with me in this word. I just felt like it was a biggie for me. And, um, and I think for us as a community, I just think that if there's a fire there, that's being lit or relit or enkindled in us as a community, then we're going to see that in our lives 
and just how we care for each other and, and just more of God. And so I um, yeah, really appreciate your attentiveness and, and, your, and your care towards receiving this today. So, um, uh, yeah. There, I really, you know, I'm, yeah, let's just, it's okay to, to finish quietly. I don't want to, I don't want to um, change the vibe if anybody's in the middle of something. So let me pray a prayer of blessing to finish. And then if you still have stuff going on, Dino, um, put on some quiet music and please stay. Please continue to pray. And maybe if you're not praying and you're aware that other people around you being quiet, maybe we could take our conversations out of this room um, or just be more aware that there's Jesus is at work. Okay, thanks. God, I love you so much. And I know that you love me. And I can feel that you love me right now, and I so appreciate that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this word today. And I pray that the things that you've stirred in my brother and sister's hearts, that they would be fanned into flame that they would be bold and courageous to continue to pursue it. And thank you, thank you, thank you that your word says that you pursue us. Surely goodness and mercy will chase after me all the days of my life. Thank you that you're pursuing us even today. So I just pray that you would bless what you're doing, that you would bless my brothers and sisters for this week. And... Um, just thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your words. And thank you, Jesus, for everything. And I just pray for you that you would go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.